we're always in dynamic states uh, until we until we move on to the next level of our existence in this universe. So every nothing is really that stable. The constant is change, of course. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Nursery Podcast. Today we are very fortunate to have back with us Dan Shuba. The last time JP and I spoke with Dan, we were in the midst of the COVID pandemic, and he was telling about the, telling us about the amazing research going on at Johns Hopkins University. Now today we're going to shift gears and talk about another very exciting area of Dan's life, which is he has just transitioned from Johns Hopkins to take over for the Northwell uh, Health if you will, enterprise in New York City, which is, I believe, the largest health enterprise in New York City. So, Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mike, and thank you, JP, for having me. This is a wonderful podcast you guys run, and, and it means a lot to all of us. So thank you for including me. And congratulations also on your MBA from the Wharton Business School. That is, uh, of course, uh, America's most prestigious business school. I say that at the risk of pissing off my friends from Harvard and Stanford, but I consider <laughs> I consider Wharton to be top notch. So we got to get back to talking about that. But tell us about your journey and how this has led you to this completely new role uh, as as not just a neurosurgeon, but a, a healthcare administrator. Yeah, thank you for that question. And and you know, it's 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 different for everyone. I, I'll tell you just in in my recent life because I think a lot of us have neurosurgery in common, and we have a lot of similar things that made us go into it. And everyone's different, but we do have a lot of things that overlap. For me, what what I saw happening is is as much as I loved uh, operating and still love operating and taking care of patients, doing research. Um, at times, I felt that there can be a more a magnifier, a bigger multiplier, uh, a greater sphere of influence for when, for example, the two of you see or think of something uh, amazing, you did this, you, you multiplied your ability to share ideas with the masses and, and, it's, and it's, it's, it's coming back a thousandfold. And so for me, as I kind of went through my mid-career and saw patients and did papers, I felt that my asymptote, I was starting to asymptote, my, my saying, I think I'm doing the same things, I'm just not getting as much gain out of them for my patients or, or the field. And so my desire was to go to business school to say, is there another aspect of improving healthcare, improving healthcare delivery, improving access, improving education? And I'm not as, uh, uh, I didn't have the thinking of something like what you guys are doing with podcasting, but a similar thing, I wanted to be disruptive and innovative. And then I want to get my business degree. And in the process, I think I signaled to colleagues across the country and started getting invited for chair jobs. Uh, and then I began the process of saying, is this something that I want to consider? Uh, do I give up something in forms of administration? Do I gain things with administration? But that's where it's happened. And, and I've been doing that for now for the, the I, I just passed my hundredth day on the new job. So it's been a, it's been a great, great transition. Well, the first hundred days is, is always a storied period in any new uh, leadership position. Um, it, it, that's a very interesting uh, take you have where you consider that we're all engaged in patient care. We're all doing neurosurgery, as you say, but perhaps transitioning part of your time and energy into these 
higher level roles, so to speak, is still a way to bring proper care to your patients by focusing on the system in which you deliver the actual clinical interventions. Um, I wonder if you could, we were talking before we started recording about your recent move and the recent transition to the new job and how you're still somewhat settling in. Have you yet figured out what exactly the breakdown will be in terms of your day-to-day? Whenever we talk to people or I talk to people in leadership roles and certainly within academia as well, people talk about, well, I have my clinical time, my academic time, and my administrative time. Do you have a sense yet of what that breakdown might be for you now? Uh, You know, it's a great question, and and I guess I'll respond first with the, the bigger broader stroke, and then I can get into the details of the specific question. But the broader stroke is this, you know, when people say balance, work-life balance, family balance, um, I always think of the, the metaphor, the analogy of, of being on a balance beam. And for me, I'm no, I'm no great uh, a gymnast. So balancing takes effort. It actually is hard. Uh, and, or driving a car, you can't really take, unless you have a self-driving car, of course, but you can't take your hands off the wheel uh, because even if it's going to be relatively straight, it's, uh, there's an element where things can be derailed. So what I was saying is that when people ask about balance, I always find myself saying it probably is never going to be a status quo. And the ability to give one day or two days every single week, as we know, patients, family, job changes that. And so as a result, what I've tried to do is ease into each of these roles with constant feedback from my colleagues. So for example, when it comes to clinical, I've, I've focused my career more recently on really just tumors and deformity. And so I'm not doing as many traumas as I used to. I'm not doing as much uh, simple degen. And that gives me some free time to work on those more challenging cases, which I really enjoy. In terms of feedback for my staff and for the leadership, likewise, I'm sitting there going, am I meeting your needs? And they're sitting there going, you're, you're going above and beyond. Uh, or you haven't even touched the surface and you need to engage more. And so I think as time goes on, uh, that's what we're going to do. And so what I would, the last thing I'll say is this, whether it's a new job or a relationship or anything that we engage with a lot, uh, there's not only differences between individuals, but there's differences in the life cycle of that individual. So Dan Shuba at 35 is different than Dan Shuba at 45 and will be different at 65. And we have to constantly be listening and giving feedback to others about are we delivering on what they expect and also telling them what we expect. And I think that's part and parcel to kind of the evolution of my maturity over the last 10 years. So, Dan, you know, I'm, I'm ever fascinated by what you've been doing in your career. And we were just together in Chicago a couple of weeks ago in JP's town. And we talked about this a little bit. And I want to ask you, was there like a sentinel event or something that happened or went off in your mind that triggered you to do the MBA and then make this move? And I, is there a relationship between the two? And also, how the hell did you talk your wife into this? Because everybody I know has talked about doing an MBA, but very few people do it, and certainly almost none at a place like Wharton. Yeah, great, great questions, Mike. So I think the sentinel event probably wasn't one, you know, it maybe came to a straw breaking the camel's back, but it was probably a combination of where, you know, I think all of us see patterns in our daily lives, definitely in our clinics and our operating rooms. And we sit there and I know you've been so innovative and you continually don't accept the status quo. And, and that's sometimes hard, right? You have to actually push through to make a change. And so what I found was that maybe unlike you, who I've seen make changes in, in 
in your in your uh, uh, university setting where sometimes there's some bureaucracy like all of us have, I felt that um, when I would bring up something, they'd say, well, you know, uh, great thought, but that's really a business thing. That's not really a doctor's thing. And, you know, you're smart and you're a doctor and, you know, go do your doctor stuff. And maybe they didn't say it like that, but that's how I heard it and felt it. Um, and so, you know, I, for example, I'd say like classic, you know, operations, not operations like we do, but operations of businesses, you know, supply demand mismatches where we'd say, how come we're not getting those patients in who need it? And how come we're, we're sitting idle on other days? And how come our junior guy is asking help, but our senior guy's too busy? And how can we, and I'd say, can we have some kind of algorithms on this? And they'd say, um, just, you know, just go to clinic or just write your paper. That's for the business people. And so that was something that I just said, I'd love to learn that because I think it's not about being a businessman or about being a banker. It's if I'm better at that, I can actually deliver better care or we can deliver better care. So it kind of really culminated with me having a number of conversations. And I think it did culminate with me saying, you know, I'd really like to explore this more to help, you know, get more spine tumor patients through or get them better care. Um, and we would write papers on how to make things better. And then we wouldn't be able to implement those issues that we had just studied. And someone said to me, well, you know, if you, if you want more influence, you can always go to business school. And I remember that to your point, it was in the hallway right outside the locker room when I'd finished a long case. And I said, I feel like I'm frustrated because I don't know if people get what the doctors can see. And they said, uh, well, if you can go to business school. And then of course, uh, geeky, geeky me, I went up and I started looking up, you know, business school and Wharton's not too far from Baltimore. And I, I did it. In terms of what was the second question? Was it about uh, my wife? Yeah. So <laughs> the question that I, I brought up my wife, and of course, my wife, uh, we've been, I, I adore my wife and, and the fact that she has put up with my uh, uh, restlessness uh, throughout our entire marriage is, is, is a testament to her and, and her sacrifice. So it's likely her just dealing with me. But I think what, what we made as a promise together was I said, I really think I want to do this. And she made some comment like, well, that, that means you're probably going to do it. So I don't know if you're asking, you're kind of telling me, but if you are going to do it, you can't, you know, she didn't say this, but she basically said, you can't have everything. You know, it's that old line. You can have anything you want, but you can't have everything you want. And so she said, you're going to have to take off. If you're going out there on Friday and Saturdays, uh, the weekends that you're not going to Wharton, you shouldn't be going to every single spine meeting in the world like you used to do. You maybe take a break for this next year and a half, which I did. And then also COVID helped me because they kind of shut it down. So I had a cover there. Uh, and she also said, and when you're home, you got to be more present. And we, we, we had that discussion where when I'm home, I'm still answering the phone. And she said, you work so hard when you get home and you're not doing business skill stuff, um, just be with us. And, and we worked on that. And so she made a joke to me and, and family one time saying, Dan is busier, but he's actually spending more time with his family than he has in the past. So somehow... I don't think I, I defied the first law of thermodynamics and created more energy or matter where there wasn't, but I think I traded some things that I probably was doing inefficiently and, you know, hanging out more when I didn't have to hang out in the hospital and, and going to meetings for the whole time instead of a couple of days. And so uh, we changed that and it's helped. It's been a, it's been a blessing. You know, I was sitting here listening to you answer those questions and I already was struggling with myself. Oh, goodness, do, do I pursue the new mindset and the new approach to clinical practice through business? Do I pursue the family angle? And then you brought up thermodynamics and I just don't know which way to go. But um, <laughs> I, I, I think we should uh, obviously, of course, return to the question of uh, your family and, and your relationship with your family, your role with your family through this move, both professionally and as, as we were talking about before, physically moving to a new city. But before we circle back to that, if we could, 
I, I loved what you were saying when you were talking about going to business school and achieving a different perspective on your clinical day-to-day life and thinking about the system of getting the patients in, getting them treated, getting them out of the hospital at that level with the business perspective. But I wonder if not at the systems level and not at the group organizational level, but in the one-to-one when you were, again, a doctor, a surgeon in a room with a patient, be it in your clinic, be it in the operating room, did your experiences in business school and these new ways that you were taught to think about the healthcare system affect the way you were interacting with patients, even on the one-to-one level? You know, I love that question because it's actually something that I've shared quite a bit. So the I actually brought this up quite a bit with colleagues and it kind of spins their heads a little bit. And I actually said recently, and I've now repeated it, I said, going to business school gave me more empathy uh, in the last few years than I thought it would, or it gave me more empathy than my current job is giving me. And people say, wait a second, you're going, you're, you're working at Johns Hopkins and you're going to the Wharton school of finance and you're getting empathy there. Like, what are you talking about? That's the, that's where you, you know, hardcore business. And, and the reason I say that is because uh, at my age, when a 30-year-old resident uh, comes to the operating room or asks for a patient, you know, they respond to me traditionally as Dr. Shuba this or Dr. Shuba that, and what would you like? And it's, how can I help you? And that's the hierarchy of, of classic, you know, ivory tower medicine. Uh, when you're in business school and the 30-year-old investment banker or consultant who's in my learning group uh, they don't call me Dr. Shuba, they call me Dan, and they tell me when they think I haven't done the cash flows correctly or when I haven't uh, taken into account all the marketing factors for a certain market on a project. And what it made me realize is that whole idea of teams, because corporations also have a bad reputation for being hierarchical, but more recently, corporations that do really well are flat, and they really like to say everyone in the room matters. And so what I left with that perspective or throughout that perspective is I just kept saying every single person in the room has a perspective that is important and informs our success. I really, really believe that. So where I would sometimes be with a patient going, you tell me your deal, and then I'll, I'll quickly tell you the, the right answer, you know, based on my experience, uh, which is very arrogant. And I'm not saying I would think that, but I think that's how I thought, you know, hey, listen, I'm doing this, you know, hey, I, you're a patient, I got it, I know what you need. And now I just sit there and actually sit there and go, tell me what your goals are with your treatment. Tell me, tell me what makes you tick and how I can help you. And they say, well, my, my spine. And I said, no, no, like, what's the big picture? And it doesn't take much more time. It doesn't take any more time. And patients, when they say, well, you know, I'm a retired uh, army person. And I said, wow, you know, how did you transit? And all of a sudden they get me and I get them. And I say, now, listen, I'm going to be honest with you. As an army person, you're going to get it this way. Why don't we think about it this way? And the connection of first and foremost, understanding that every single person in the room has a connection. That was a thing I learned in business. I don't think I learned that in medicine as much. I I learned in medicine, you kind of do what you're told until you get to the position of power, and then you tell other people what you're telling to be told. And so uh, that was something that actually, it sounds surprising, but I got empathy by going to business school. It's helped me with my peers. It really has, and it's helped me with my patients, and and it's helped me with my family. Yeah, that's such a great comment, Dan. And I always feel like you you have your pulse on so many different things in in the environment around you. But here you are, you're going to be uh, running the neurosurgical side of one of the largest healthcare franchises in this country. Can you give us a little bit of an idea of the scope of this and how you're going to listen to all of those innumerable voices within your organization? Tell us about 
about how Northwell is situated today in, in New York. And it's a new thing, right? It's grown greatly over the last 10 years. Yeah, thank you, Mike, for that question. So yeah, Northwell Health is uh, really a conglomeration of hospitals that came out of some really well-known regional hospitals. So there's a show on Netflix called Lenox Hill. That's one of the hospitals those neurosurgeons work in, in, in our department, in our service line. We have Long Island Jewish, we have North Shore, and basically 23 hospitals, of which there are eight neurosurgical centers. And uh, in, in essence, we have a chair of neurosurgery at each hospital, and I'm the service line chair, so I'm kind of like the chair of the chairs. And and what what I uh, did very early on when I met all the all the faculty and specifically the chairs is I said we're all partners. We're all partners in this. That was the first thing I told them. And then they said, well, actually, the reporting structure is I have to report to. I said we're all partners. And then I also this might be crazy to all out there, but I negotiated a contract whereby which I didn't make more money uh, for cases. Uh, for myself, but I made more money if my chairs did better in their respective areas. So in the first dinner meeting, I sat with them and I said, maybe I'm an idiot, uh, but uh, talk is cheap. And I'm gonna, when I tell you I'm going to support you, uh, the Shuba children and the Shuba wife will make more money uh, and do better if you guys all do better. Uh, so I really kind of linked my train to the success. Uh, and they all, I think, stopped chewing at that time and said, whoa, like either this guy's crazy or maybe this is kind of cool. And I think that that has allowed us a very quick, I'll tell you, these chairs have become very close friends very quickly uh, because I think they know I have skin in the game and uh, I care about what they do. And then I also hold them accountable. But my hope is that I can, I don't know, 90% of the time or more lead from behind and just, you know, maybe help coordinate. Uh, if, if I'm happy to lead from the front, if someone is flailing and uh, or the surgery uh, in my own room and, and I need to take, you know, the instruments out of the hands of the resident because I don't want them to, to do something that is not ideal. Uh, I'll, I'll lead from the front, but leading from behind uh, and leading together side by side, it sounds cheesy. It's hard to do. It really is hard to do, uh, but it really is the most satisfying. I'll just say one last thing that I think is important that I've learned is that all of us are leaders. All of us are leaders. I tell every meeting I have, I say we're all leaders. If, it, if it's any discrepancy, whether it's students, residents, or faculty. Um, the issue is that most of us think leading is down. We think, oh, I can lead someone below me. And that is the easiest one. I think we can teach residents or students below us. The next easiest one is leading up. You know, basically telling your boss, hey, listen, I'm going to do this for you, and I hope this works. Oh, yeah, that's good. You're, you're a good employee. The hardest one for me has always been leading across. Uh, because these people don't, we don't, you know, we're not above them and we don't report them. These are people that we have to influence that don't really have to spend time with us or listen to anything I have to say. So leading across is very hard. And, and when you have partners, service, other service line and chairs that have to work with me, Department of Orthopedics, Department of Oncology, they don't owe me anything. I have to find a way to lead with them uh, to get a common thing together. So again, I think that the team, the key is partnership, understanding what they want, understanding what you want covering the, the Venn diagram that there's an overlap and saying we both have value and, uh, and, and then working honestly together toward a common goal. What a phenomenal insight on managing new relationships. I mean, entering any new organization, but particularly in a position of leadership such as yours, where, as you said, you have people who are under you in the hierarchy, you have people who are next to you in the hierarchy, and you have to coordinate all of these efforts towards a common aim. But you also mentioned in there, and I, I promised you we would come back, the Shuba wife and the Shuba children. And so I wonder if we could now talk about what it's like in terms of the family relationship and their process of moving with you. Again, as we said, not just in a transition point in your life, but moving between cities, moving to a different state. Um, I know that for many people in neurosurgical training, when they reach 
the mid-level of residency or the more senior level of residency and they have more free time, they have some more money, that's around the age when many of us start having children. And then those of us who move on into academic careers, it's very common for, as, as everyone says, your first job in academics is not your last job in academics. People sometimes tend to bounce around between institutions. So I wonder if you could speak to those people who might be considering a move or entering into a situation where they're likely to move about what the process was like to relocate your family. What were the conversations like? How did it go? What would you do differently? Anything you can offer our listeners. Yeah, yeah. thank you for that tough question. And I'll, I'll honestly admit it's still in process. So, um, you know, I don't have that answer. And then we're always in dynamic states uh, until we until we move on to the next level of our existence in this universe. So every, nothing is really that stable. The constant has changed, of course. I will tell you that what I would suggest to people, because I think this is something that I've gleaned, is um, always be willing to share as much as you feel comfortable sharing. That's my line. Whenever I have a meeting with someone, I say, I'd, I'm very transparent. I'm very direct. I, I you know, sometimes have to apologize for my directness or may, oftentimes have to. But I say to, to people, patients and providers and, and other colleagues, I say, Share whatever you feel comfortable sharing. But if you share it, I will comment on it. I will engage with you on it. And so I think as you kind of uh, look at jobs and look at opportunities, I think it's worth sharing with the people you care about, the ones that you have stakeholders in your life, whether it be family or friends uh, or bosses or, or partners, you have to share whatever you feel comfortable because they are stakeholders in your life. And they, if they're in your life, they care about you in some way. And so it's worth getting their opinions on everything. And then... We at the same time or later, you actually have to ask what you want to do. And that becomes a little bit of what I'd call an investment payout uh, belief, right? So whether you're a patient looking to undergo a procedure that's scary in hopes that uh, there's a good, a better recovery on the other side, whether you're an investor saying, I'm going to put $50 into investment, hope I get $100 out in another year or 100 years or what have you, that evaluation we all do all the time. And that really comes down to research. And I don't mean research like the, I mean, really asking questions of yourself and what you want out of life, honestly, and it's sometimes scary. There's a, the coach of the Phoenix Suns who are in the finals right now, one of his famous lines to his players is, uh, what we want is on the other side of hard. What we want is on the other side of hard. And right now we're in hard. We're in this game. This is what, this is what we were expecting to get to where we want to go. And it's very inspiring to me because it kind of says, it's not, it's not Pollyannish. In other words, when there's things we want, we know that we have to work on them. So with the family, um, it really came down to saying, where are we going to be in the next few years? And, uh, you know, Carrie uh, said to me, my wife, Carrie, I said, honey, she said, it's not great for the kids right now. It's not an ideal time. She just said it. She said, it's not an ideal time. I said, well, in that case, um, we'll stay and I'll be happy. And she said, well, you can stay, but I don't think you'll be happy. And I said, well, it's not about me. It's about the whole family. She says, but we drive on when we see you and when you're with us that you're positive. And if every day you come home and you complain about every single thing at work or that you are not, uh, you're restless, that you are not feeling like you're contributing in some way, um, we got to do something differently. And then she, and then she asked me for, but you have to, you know, you have to uh, uh, appreciate and sacrifice the important things in our family and work around those things. You don't have to be for every single meal and every single dinner and every single event, but the ones that we want, we should make a focus on that. And whenever I've shared that at work, now you don't want to do that every day, but whenever I share, listen, uh, I, I worked till midnight last night, uh, but in the middle of today, today I'm going to be out for two hours so I can do this thing. Uh, no one seems to ask me now, maybe that's because they work for me and I'm the new boss, but I think they honestly, I'm setting hopefully a role model that I work really hard when I have to. And I also work really hard with the family. And so 
I, I will, you know, hopefully uh, as we talk, all of us are friends uh, in the future. Uh, I keep, keep, uh, they keep uh, helping me make the right decisions. And when I make mistakes, which I will, uh, I have the, the wisdom and the support that uh, we can recover and get better. All of us want that of each other. And that's what we should do for each other. Well, Dan, in that answer, I think you summarized one of the key reasons why we have this podcast, which is we see in your very high level struggle, what we as neurosurgeons are trying to do every day and, and the, the challenges we face in terms of time and commitment and energy and devotion and all that, that's, that's really well put. And you obviously have a very supportive uh, and wonderful family. Um, tell us a little bit about what your plans are. So you are now in at least uh, for the work days in New York City and not that Baltimore Johns Hopkins is a small place, but New York is a really, really big place. And as they say, uh, as the saying goes, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Right. So these are some big tasks, I'm sure. And without you know tipping your hand to your competitors in the area. Uh, tell us a little about what we can expect uh, potentially in terms of what you're going to do with the program there, whether it be the residency, the clinical service lines, the hospital arrangements, insurance, whatnot, so we can get a taste of what a great mind like yours does when they take on a big job like this. Thank you for that. That's no, it's an inspiring question. I hope I can hand, have an inspiring answer or an honest answer at least. So I think uh, two parts. Uh, one that is, you know, just to remind us all what we well, I think we are charged with, and, and those are those classic pillars, right, of clinical excellence, excellent uh, re research, which is a form of innovation, and then education for in the form of residents and trainees. And so the goal, of course, everyone always says, you know, in these kind of uh, platitude type things, we have to be the best in the world or the best in the region or, you know, the best in the best. And um, that's good. That's good. But, you know, it kind of falls flat when everyone says it every day. Um but we have to strive for at least excellence. We don't have to be the best. We just have to strive for excellence. What, I, what I'm going to be a little more bold about, and, and we'll see if I even scratch the surface on this by the end of my career, and, and you can obviously tease me and say, Shuba, how's that going? Uh, but this is my goal. And my goal is this. Um, I think I know a little bit about spine surgery. I know a little bit about neurosurgery. But I do know a lot about being a patient or being a person uh, myself, right? I mean, I'm, or a consumer. Um, and what I'm finding is that things are changing very quickly. And right now, uh, last time I checked, it's not society because society is made of me and others, is I like to have instant access to everything, instant information. I like to be able to order something quickly and maybe have it delivered. Uh, I like to have uh, reservations made. Uh, I like to be able to contact my friends whenever I want them through social media, text, or phone. Uh, yet somehow, when I deal with uh, dealing with Dan Shuba's clinic office, they have to call between the hours of, I don't know, nine and three and get a get an admin who then says, well, you need to give me your insurance and you need to do this. And then maybe Dan Shuba can see you next week. Well, wait a second. I got this thing and I might take it out today. And Dan Shuba can't see me. And then we're going to fly in. And it's become very, very, uh, uh, very frustrating. And I think that as we all as consumers of healthcare say, way I want to be treated is X, that has to inform us as leaders in healthcare. And what I always felt was I always saw a big disconnect. And I said, there's so much room. So anyone who's listening to this, any creativity you have will add value to this because the gap between what you think you want to be treated like as a patient, uh, whether it be counseling, whether it be care, whether it be uh, support, whether it be access to innovation, uh, you got to think about that and help, uh, help all of us get there. Now, for me, the business degree was another way of saying maybe I actually can help in that way. But I would challenge all of us to think that when we think of innovation, what do we usually think of? I, I used to think of new implants, new toys, new devices, new microscopes. 
and then also discoveries, new new genes, new new treatments. I think that one of the biggest innovations we're going to see in the next 10 years, maybe even less, is innovations in the actual delivery of how we take care of each other. It's going to be more home-based. It's going to be more wearables. It's going to be more input that goes bi-directional between the patient and the provider. And it's going to be, you know, there's going to be machine learning over that saying, if you say this, you mean this. And I think as we embrace that, can we do that neurosurgically? Yes. Simulators, uh, uh, augmented reality, uh, virtual reality for training. Uh, This is going to be the way that we teach each other uh, as we go through this. And I think this podcast is a classic example of that. This didn't exist years ago, and there was a need somewhere. And you guys said, there's a gap here. Let's fill it. And of course, people have embraced it. So I think the new innovation, one that I will challenge all of us to say, is not a new toy and not a discovery, uh, but a different way of treating each other and getting through this maze of healthcare without a headache and without fear and kind of going into it saying, I can, I can access this maze at any point, and my treatment paradigm is much more efficient and much more uh, acceptable to what I want. Wow. Well, Dr. Shuba, I cannot wait for the coming five, the coming 10 years to unfold and reveal to us, certainly to, to me as my career uh, progresses, just how much of that comes true, how much of that prognostication uh, really does describe where our field's going to take us and, and not the care that we deliver, as you say, but the way that we deliver it. Um, I will say that this has been a whirlwind tour through your life in transition right now. We've covered everything from business school to meeting new people at work to moving your family. And if that underscores anything for me talking to you right now, it's just how busy you must be. So I would, I would be remiss if I took any more of your time today, Dr. Shuba. Uh, but for everyone listening, for Dr. Wang and myself, of course, thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing these experiences and perspectives today on the Neurosurgery Podcast. Thank you both so much. Congratulations for what you're doing. And thank you for what you're doing for all of us. And to everyone listening, be bold, be disruptive, and, and care for each other because we all need help in this, in this world. Thank you all. Thank you both.